is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Why go to college anymore? More young people are skipping college now, and in big numbers, we'll go in-depth. Parking in big cities like L.A. could soon be even harder to find, as if it wasn't enough already. We'll go into depth uh, why a certain spirit, and by spirit I mean booze, is growing in popularity, and people are going to great lengths to get hard-to-find bottles of it. We start, though, with, as I said, more young people skipping college. Scott Campbell, executive director of Persist Nashville. It's a nonprofit that offers college coaching. Scott, thanks for being with us. Why are they skipping? Well, thanks for having us. Um, I really appreciate it. And I think there's a bunch of reasons to that. Um, I think for some students, um, they're getting offered uh, $20 an hour and a $2,000 signing bonus to go work in a warehouse where, by the way, many of those jobs, people last less than one year. Uh, But that's pretty attractive to students coming right out of high school. I think there are some students who are frustrated with the education system feel like they were let down during the pandemic um, and uh, they didn't focus on uh, standardized tests like the ACT or didn't feel like they had the support. Uh, And then I think also there's just a general need for college access coaching and support for students um, kind of across the nation. We see it acutely here in the state of Tennessee, but I think it's uh, more of a general problem um, that we see that we have almost a 400 to one ratio of counselors to students. And many of those counselors are also dealing with mental health uh, needs of their students and general other services that they have to provide that take them away from being able to help students make those college and career decisions. And, you know, there's kind of a movement underway right now, uh, people calling for businesses and companies to stop requiring college degrees for jobs that don't require college degrees or shouldn't. Uh, Is that maybe having an effect, too, on a great rethink about uh, higher education? Yeah, I think that there's a piece of that, right? You know, the labor shortage that we hear going on kind of across the nation is causing employers to think a little bit differently. Uh, you know, our colleges and institutions are a little bit slower uh, to be able to make uh, big changes to how they schedule or flexibility, uh, what type of credentials they offer. And so I think it's a, it's a combination of those factors is, is also impacting that. But I also don't think it's permanent, you know, when, you know, colleges aren't going anywhere. <laughs> they, we, we've had college universities since the beginning, uh, almost the founding of our country. Um, there's still a high desire. There's still a high need. People still feel very connected. And when you look at the data from Georgetown and other, you know, looking at economic changes in our country, still in Tennessee in particular, 76% of the jobs uh, in 2030 are still going to require some uh, if uh, college degree, uh, some college experience, if not a college degree. So colleges aren't going anywhere. So that idea that they're just going away, I think it, it, we should just go ahead and close the door on that and just think differently about how do we better respond to employers' needs. Okay, so colleges are not going anywhere. I think you're right about that. But uh, a lot of the kids who are deciding not to go to college, are they not going to go anywhere either? You mentioned that uh, the average warehouse job lasts about a year. Now, certainly not everybody needs to or should go to college. There are plenty of professions that this country does need that do not require a college education. That being said, uh, for the most part, are they making a really bad decision if they decide not to go? So here's what we know about 
students who are, um, you know, considered low income, right? If you don't enroll right out of high school, less than 10% of those students will ever earn a college degree. You know, a lot of people have been talking about this concept of gap year, right? Well, a lot of students just are taking a gap year. Gap year is, is, is pretty much a, a middle to upper income concept and idea. If you start working in your low income and then you're going to rely upon that income to be able to support yourself and family, uh, it, it's going to be very difficult and very challenging to actually get back into school. And we know that over the course of your lifetime with a college degree, you're going to earn on average over $900,000 more. You're going to require about $300,000 less in federal, uh, you know, um, and services and state services, you know, you're going to contribute to the economy, you're going to vote more often, you're going to be healthier. I mean, the research kind of across the board says that currently having a college degree is going to lead for better outcomes. But I think for me, the biggest thing that I talk often with students about is it just gives you more choice. No, you may you may not do the exact thing you go to college for, but having that college degree is going to give you more options. Um, and when I talk about college, I do want to be clear. We are talking about a two-year, four-year, or technical degree. Earning a technical degree state certification mm-hmm. is a college degree. And so, you know, and you, it's hard to argue that going to hang drywall uh, versus going to get a two-year uh, TCAT, which is Tennessee College of Applied Technology, right. or any type of applied college degree where you can earn $48,000 with an electrician's degree isn't going to lead to more income for you and your family okay. long-term. All right, Scott uh, Campbell, thank you so much. With uh, Persist Nashville, they're a nonprofit that offers college coaching. Right now, though, finding parking in L.A. and other big cities tends to be pretty difficult. It could even get more so and more challenging as officials are changing parking spot rules for developers. Jeff Speck is a city planner and the author of Walkable City, How Downtown Can Save America One Step at a Time. Jeff, why has it been so difficult to find parking in most big cities? That's a great question, and I would I would even contend that um, the new rules won't make parking harder to find. They'll make parking probably easier to find because they'll allow the free market to operate properly. Parking is is usually hard to find, not because there isn't an adequate supply, but because actually the free market isn't allowed to operate in the way that it's priced. So, for example, if you make free parking or or low-cost parking that's uh, a lot cheaper to use than people value it, then you get crowding at the curb, you get circling. Um, uh, Good, good, uh, well-planned downtowns have parking plans that actually price parking relative to its value. So, for example, uh, Main Street parking might be more expensive than in a garage, and then a few streets away it's cheaper, and then eventually it's free. And people can choose where to park based on how much of a hurry they're in, how much they're willing to spend money. Um, if you do it right, you get one empty curb face, one, one empty space per block. I always say, you know, you want Daddy Warbucks to be able to get a spot by the furrier. The people with money to spend will spend the right amount uh, for them, uh, to park and shop. But what about people who don't have the money to spend? Well, you know, what's really fascinating is, again, like every aspect of our daily lives, when you let the free market operate, uh, people are able to make choices that benefit them. So someone who has less money to spend will find a parking space a little further away and they'll be happy to walk, as I have been <laughs> on occasion. Or if they're in a real hurry, they'll they'll opt to spend a little bit more. But what's interesting is that this, this, um, this trend that you're discussing 
isn't isn't about uh, on street parking. It's about off street parking. And what's changing are the rules, the mandates that you find in communities uh, requiring minimums, minimum amounts of off street parking. So when you uh, build a restaurant or you put in an office, um, how much parking are you required to provide uh, as a part of that real estate development? That's what these rules are about. And they're basically saying, hey, let's let's not create these these arbitrary and they turn out to be quite arbitrary. Let's not create these arbitrary minimums for how much parking a developer um, or a, a merchant has to provide, but let's them let's let them figure it out and let's allow the free market to operate. And when you do that, in fact, you don't end up with any less, um, you know, you don't end up with any more crowding. What you end up with is a lot fewer empty parking spaces in places that they aren't needed. Well, you know, those are the ideals, but ideals always run into the real world. And in a city like, for example, Los Angeles, as compared to New York City or San Francisco, where you've got a robust uh, public transit system that can get you where we need to go with a minimum of hassle, whereas here in Los Angeles, it's kind of a headache to use transit. That's why you've already got the stratification of people into the haves and the have-nots, and changing parking rules in the way that you are suggesting would feels to me like make more of that stratification of the haves, get the good parking spots, and the have-nots park all the way out here, and gradually... Uh, you know, reality runs into space and how many cars we have and how many people are out and where we don't have a, a public transit uh, system that people can take advantage of easily are forced to remain in their cars and keep the car crowding up. Well, I'm going to sound like the anti-socialist that I'm not, but, um, you know, the haves get better housing and the haves get better food. And um, and why is there this one aspect of our society, parking, where somehow uh, you're not allowed to pay uh, for something of higher value. <laughs> what happens with the with the on-site parking requirement uh, in in the U.S. is that um, it prevents renovations to buildings. For example, if you want to change a, a piano shop into a restaurant, well, all of a sudden you've got to provide twice as many parking spaces, and you don't have that. Um, it, it lends to low. It tends to lead to to um, making affordable housing unaffordable. Uh, there was one project in California, in Palo Alto, uh, Alma Place. It was a 107-unit affordable housing development. Uh, the parking requirement on this development for, for very poor people next to a train station, uh, even though they reduced the requirement, it added 38% to the cost of construction. And that's something you find uh, all over the U.S. Also, these parking requirements are, are tremendously arbitrary. They're not based on any real science. They tend to have been copied uh, from city to city, you know, a bowling alley requires five spaces per lane plus one per employee. Uh, in one city, a swimming pool is one space per 2,500 gallons of water. So a 10-foot deep pool, pool holds twice as many swimmers, I guess, as a five-foot deep pool, presumably stacked like uh, chocolates in a box. I mean, <laughs> the, the, the requirements are pretty preposterous. That was uh, Jeff Speck, uh, city planner, author of the the uh, book Walkable City, How Downtown Can Save America One Step at a Time. He probably left earlier to park his car. Yeah, find a parking spot. When we come back, a big auto company looks to clear out much of its offices. Right now, though, General Motors looking to drastically reduce its white-collar workforce. Here to explain why they're doing that is David Welch, Detroit Bureau Chief for Bloomberg News, author of Charging Ahead, GM, Mary Barra, and the Reinvention of an American Icon. Thank you so much for joining us today. 
Thanks for having me on the show. So uh, why is this happening? Why are they offering these uh, payouts and trying to clear out? How big of a reorganization is this? Um, look, it's not – I wouldn't call it massive. I think they're offering buyouts that more than half would be eligible for. I don't think they're going to take all of them out. Uh, what they're trying to do is just cut costs for a couple of reasons. One, they're trying to electrify their whole fleet, and it's costing billions of dollars. They need to save money. You saw Ford lay people off earlier this year. Uh, Stellantis, which is the former owns the former Chrysler, they've idled a plan. Everyone's trying to save money here. The other part is you got inflation, you've got high interest rates. That could ward consumers away from buying cars, and if there is some kind of downturn in auto sales, uh, they're going to want to uh, to get out in front of it in terms of cost cuts. Financially, the company's doing well right now. They had near record profits last year, so it's not like they're they're hurting and needing a restructuring just to stay afloat. This is kind of, I think, getting ahead of the game and saving money, given all that they have to invest in new technology going forward. I was going to say, how much uh, of this has to do? with the shift toward making all electric vehicles only? A lot of it is. They're spending billions on this, and these vehicles just don't make a lot of money. Some of them actually lose money. GM is saying that their electric vehicle program will be profitable by 2025, but that means the next couple of years they're going to be ramping up production of EVs, Hummers, Chevys, Cadillacs, you name it. And some of those vehicles, actually the whole program is probably going to be losing money in the early game on that. And they're building battery plants, they're building electric vehicle assembly plants, all of this stuff. And if there is any kind of downturn, I think they want to be prepared. You know, that's a, you, you raise an interesting point that I'm curious about. Uh, are, is this a cyclical, a cyclical thing, or is this uh, going to be more of a permanent thing moving forward, that there are just going to be less people working for these car companies as the market changes? Or is this going to turn around as, as uh, they fully transition to EVs and electric markets and charging stations, and then uh, the business will pick back up again down the road. Well, they're saying that this is part of $2 billion in annual cost cuts. So it, it, these cuts here are basically a structural reduction for the company. There, there are other things that go into that $2 billion, like eliminating engineering redundancy in the vehicles themselves and doing things with their part suppliers to get better pricing and so forth. So it's not coming all out of the heights of workers, but I, I think most of it probably is. Does GM think that it, it can't as efficiently make electric vehicles as at least the perception is uh, Tesla can? Well, they would never say that, of course. Electric vehicles are actually easier to build. But in the interim, batteries are so expensive, and that interim could be a number of years. It could be a decade before the costs really get down to where internal combustion vehicles are. Um, I mean, what GM is saying is that they can get the same profits on their electric vehicles as they do with today's cars, but only because of the credits, tax credits that, that the government gives. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't be able to do it. So all of that said, over time, They'll be able to make vehicles as cheaply and as efficiently as probably anybody. I mean, you look at the conventional car companies like GM, Toyota, Volkswagen, they're very good at assembling vehicles. Tesla's advantage right now is they've been doing this for a long time, so they've already got scale in making the batteries and the battery cells. 
that's where everybody else is racing to catch up with Tesla. And that's where they're all going to be hurting the next couple of years in terms of profitability. So they're, they're investing to build battery plants, investing to build vehicles to make electric vehicles. But they're also, they, they just don't have the cost basis that Tesla and the others have on these batteries because they're not making as many of them. These workers that are uh, getting the buyout offers, white-collar workers, these aren't like uh, like line workers that uh, could be offered retraining to do other jobs. These are white-collar executives. Uh, some of them are taking retirement buyouts, as I understand. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. Yeah, these are you know, anybody who's white-collar who works at GM's tech center or headquarters. They could be accountants, marketing people, designers, engineers, you name it, managers. It's It's kind of that whole white-collar group. All right, thank you so much. That is uh, David Welch, Detroit Bureau Chief for Bloomberg News. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Russia has launched a big missile and drone attack across Ukraine. The missiles hit residential buildings and important infrastructure. At least six people killed. War correspondent Phil Itner is with us again from Kiev. Phil, what's the latest there? Well, right now it's relatively quiet, actually. We haven't had a, an air raid siren since this morning's attack. And I say this morning because it was really in the very early hours of the day when we had this massive attack, uh, when most people were still in bed. Uh, normally, they uh, have been hitting us. I say they, the Russians, uh, have been hitting us kind of at around, uh, you know, drive time. Uh, that kind of rush hour uh, time. Uh, but tonight uh, or today, they, they hit while people are still sleeping. They hit with a uh, they hit with a number of different things, but uh, notably they hit with these hypersonic Kinjal missiles, which I've actually been under fire in the past, and, I, and I've been under fire under many, many different conventional weapons in, in my career. And being under fire from a hypersonic missile is is unlike anything I've ever experienced in my life. And it's very disturbing because it travels at such high velocity that when it impacts, it's not just the explosive that that causes damage, but it's it's the sonic vibration from actually hitting the the ground. And it, 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 you know, reverberates throughout the city. So it's so very distressing. Um, Not just Kiev was hit. Uh, Kherson, I believe it was uh, uh, Kherson was hit, Odessa was hit, Lviv tragically, a uh, family was hit, and, uh, and just innocent civilians sleeping in the night. Uh, and then disturbingly, uh, it hit near the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, depriving it of energy for a, a period of time. And that's a risk because if they can't keep the water cool using the energy, those uranium rods which power the nuclear power plant could come into uh, they could they could fall you know they could break apart and that's a grave concern here. Now these hypersonic missiles is this the first time that Russia has used those or used those to to this degree? To this degree, yes. Normally they have. To my mind, they've hit about three times during this war, but they're single strikes. When I was hit, I was in Odessa, and it was a direct reaction to the Ukrainians um, uh, taking over a a oil rig platform that was being used by the Russians as a missile launching platform. Uh, and in response, they hit, uh, they hit Odessa with a hypersonic missile. And that's how I can attest to my experience of, of, of the oddity of what that's like. Um, but today's attack, or this morning's attack, I should say, because we're, we're creeping into the you know <laughs> next day here, um, is uh, was a significant number. Uh, I believe 
uh, six were shot at the Capitol, at least two came through. It's almost impossible to stop these things. So the fact that the the, the Ukrainian uh, air defense were able to stop at least a few of them is, is pretty impressive. Um, but uh, it's the first time we've seen a volley of these hypersonic missiles. Normally, it's, it's a one-off thing. And what does that do to the morale? Well, nothing. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it makes people more angry. Um, it, makes more, it makes people more resilient. I mean, it's, it's the exact opposite of what the Russians are intending to do, which is to intimidate or to terrorize the Ukrainian people. And they just can't seem to get it through their heads that the, 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 the vast majority of the people in this country are resolved to see this out no matter what, and they will not be uh, intimidated, in, intimidated in this fashion. So it's it's the complete opposite of what I think the, the Russians are intending to do. Now, if they're trying to hit a, a, a strategic uh, objective, even if it is a civilian uh, spot like a, a power station, um, that's one thing. But just hitting, you know, people sleeping in the night, uh, all that does is, is stiffen the resolve here because it, it just makes people so angry, understandably. All right, uh, Phil Edner, you stay safe there uh, in Kiev and watch out for those hypersonic missiles coming in. Okay, you may want to sit back, pour yourself a drink for this next segment. Remember, uh, it wasn't too long ago uh, when there was a lot of, of uh, uh, stuff. That's a good word, isn't it? Stuff. Stuff, stuff about... about uh, Craft beer. Mm-hmm. Remember that? I remember. Yeah. yeah. I mean, a lot of like news reports and, and yeah. stuff. It was a thing. Just, it was the whole thing. thing. It's a lot of stuff. Yeah. That's why I like stuff because stuff encompasses <laughs> lots of things. It covers it all. It covers it all. But uh, well, now microbreweries, uh, of course, they opened everywhere and they had things like uh, blueberry uh, beer, yeah. remember, and I peanut remember. Butter chocolate stout, which mm-hmm. sounds absolutely gross. Well, the palates are changing, though. They are now looking for the hard stuff bourbon has recently soared in popularity. What's interesting here uh, is that the script says soured in popularity, and I think that's... Uh, no, it's soared. That's, that's witty. It's that's clever, soared. actually. It is. Bourbon has soured in popularity as people search for rare bottles. Fred of the Min- stuff. Of, of the, the stuff. stuff. Of the stuff, yes. Fred Minnick. <laughs> Fred Minnick is a bourbon expert and judge at World Whiskey Competitions. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. Why all of a sudden is bourbon soaring or souring in popularity? Well, thanks for having me. And it, it kind of goes back to bourbon's decline in the 60s and 70s. It That's when it declined. Vodka starts taking over at that time frame. And drinking goes in 30-year cycles. You know, vodka had its run, and bourbon is returning. And for the first time and really, bourbon's history, you've got every generation drinking bourbon. Usually there's a couple generations, but you got the millennials, Gen X, baby boomers. Everyone right now is sipping bourbon, except maybe the 21, 22-year-olds. They're mostly smoking weed. So there is a, uh, a particular brand of bourbon, and, and I, I've got, I think, I, I got the last part of the name, I think, right? It's Van Winkle or something, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Pappy Van Winkle. Pappy mm-hmm. Van Winkle. There you go. Uh, yeah. It's like 300 bucks a, a bottle for that stuff. And it, I mean, you're lucky if you could buy it for 300 well, let's I, be I, honest. I was yeah, going to say, I, I, read, I read that it, it, a bottle went at auction for, I don't know, like tens of thousands of dollars. Why? Yeah, like. Uh, for, it went for about forty-seven thousand, but really, it, it's it's the scarcity of it. It's it's rare. It's uh, twenty-three years old, which you know, as a critic, I I've, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you that 
it's usually not as good. It's it's very hyped up, and you know, Scotch is uh, known for being old and good. No one ever bats an eye at a you know a fifty year old Scotch costing thousands of dollars. But scotch is also going into used barrels, whereas bourbon's going into new charred oak barrels. So it gets a lot of that uh, wood sugars fresh from the from the wood. And 23 years is a long time uh, to be in a, in a barrel, and it extracts a lot of uh, oaky notes to it. Yes, I wouldn't so, want to be in the barrel for no. 23 years. Eh, that's a tough. That's a tough gig. So, uh, but go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say it, it's uh you know there's all this hype surrounding it because it was considered the best back in the day when they had some pretty rare stocks that they blended in it. But in the last 10, 15 years, it that 23 years been hit and miss. So there's a lot of uh, legendary glory that it's attached to and people people get very excited about when they're in the bottle's presence and so that leads to an incredible markup and secondary market okay talking about being excited to be in the bottle's presence you know part of the story that we were talking about this uh, for was uh uh, rising crime associated with people really trying to get these rare bottles of uh, mm-hmm. bourbon. And uh, what have you heard? What are people willing to do? What laws are people willing to break to get to one of these bottles? Well, there are, there are lotteries, right? Yeah. So th- on the legal sense, there there are lotteries and they do uh, uh, they'll do everything from a lottery to jack it up like 400 percent you know, from the SRP. But in terms of like the illegal shenanigans that I've seen, you know, there's been everything from um, from people who work within the the liquor community, like rip off bottles. Uh, I've seen I've seen people advertise sexual fa- actual sexual favors for a bottle. Um, but there's a lot of counterfeit around the bottle as well. So, you know, there's a few there's a few things that you can look for on a bottle. But if you go on eBay right now. You'll see like uh, empty bottles of uh, Pappy Van Winkle selling for two, three hundred dollars. Empty bottles, not, empty bottles, and that's because someone's refilling it and putting a new foil or cap on it, and so counterfeits a major issue with this bottle as well. Huh? And and does this sort of stuff? See, there, there's that You're word with again. the stuff again. See, because it's universal; it applies to everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, does this happen with with other kinds of whiskey? Yeah, actually, I would say the most counterfeited bottle is is the one you wouldn't think of, and that'd be Jack Daniels. You know, Jack Daniels counterfeited all over the world. There's actually, you know, they have a very uh, litigious group that goes after trademark infringements, and they have something that's up in the Supreme Court right now. But you see it in cognac as well. Um, cognac is very majorly counterfeited. Hennessy especially gets counterfeited a lot in scotch as as well but where where counterfeiting in the drinks world kind of gets its background is always wine you know there's there's been people serve a decade in prison for uh selling counterfeit wine for you know hundreds of thousands even millions of dollars you know when i when i was uh rob growing up in uh, new york at family dinners like passover right. the one thing you never see counterfeited was manischewitz wine <laughs> Nobody, I, you know, I, nobody as, ever counted as that a young ever. man. I had an experience with Manischewitz. I had no idea that it was alcoholic. Really? And so I was drinking, drinking like yeah. this is really sweet. I like this. this yeah, is very good. sweet. And then I discovered, to my chagrin, yeah. that I was smashed. Yeah, but no, nobody counterfeits that, do they, no. Fred? Not that I know of. Yeah, <laughs> no, not that I know of. 
<laughs> I bet not. Okay. Uh, Fred, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Fred Minnick, a bourbon expert and judge at World Whiskey Competitions, which sounds like a fun competition to judge. Yeah, it, it, it does. But, at, but, but, I, but I'm curious. So, so you actually thought it was... Because I had no idea. Right. So you I, thought it was like, I'd never like, been to a dinner before. Right. And so it was just not familiar with it. And right. then as I can't remember how how much I had drank when somebody said, you know, yeah. that is alcoholic. And I'm like, no, it's not. And about the time I said, no, it's not, that's when the room began kind of spinning around. And I realized if I have to get up to go to the bathroom, I don't think I'm going to make it on my feet. <laughs> That's it for today's KNX In-Depth. We'll be back tomorrow. With more stuff. With more stuff.